So I don't spend a lot of time in a store. It's probably a strange way to start a sermon, isn't it? But I don't spend a lot of time in the stores. I honestly don't remember the last time I walked into Walmart. Now, accounting Small Mart because I buy milk probably once a week for the family at Small Mart here in town. But uh, I can't remember the last time I actually went to Walmart to just go shopping. But I do know one thing. It's already happened, hasn't it? The Christmas decorations are on full display. The scenes of the perfectly shaped artificial trees, the sparkling lights, the inflatable snowmen, they're already crowding out the Halloween decorations. But Halloween is still 20 days away, right? These are powerful symbols. Without us even realizing it, retailers have been warming us up to the idea of Christmas carols, the aromatic wreaths, the hot cups of cocoa, cider. They're helping us to get in the mood for a holiday that's still more than two months away. Don't, don't freak out. It's only 76 days till Christmas. We are seasonal beings. For many of us, this COVID season, we want to end. We wish it had ended months ago. We're tired of this COVID season. We want it to pass. But guess what? Flu season's just around the corner, right? If you're like me, the end of summer means that uh, there's lots of sneezing, dry, itchy eyes as allergy season kicks in. We find our way through the year by the markers of the seasons. For some of us, the arrival of spring is full of joy, of expectation, a desire to get out of the house and enjoy the outdoors again. For others, the arrival of the holiday season might be marked by great, great sorrow as we remember those we've lost. Every single season is marked by special sights, smells, activities. The turning of the leaves. The smell of a fresh-baked apple pie with the apples that were just freshly picked, like the one I got to enjoy earlier this week, thanks to Stephen Zimmerman. But it was pretty good, by the way. That's beside the point. The bright orange pumpkins, all of the different things, like the long days in the field, bringing in the corn. It symbols to us that fall is here. Even though it may have been well above 80 degrees the last couple of days, fall is here. And God's Word is actually equipped with markers for the seasons as well. Just like Memorial Day marks the start of summer and Labor Day marks its end, God's Word contains references to special days that mark the seasons activities and smells that were especially designed by God, by our Creator, to evoke within us a series of emotions and memories. This morning what I want to do is I want to take a look at a passage that is quite likely unfamiliar to you. The pages of Deuteronomy are not the most traveled pages for us in our Bibles. But I want to invite you to grab your Bible and open up to the book of Deuteronomy. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible is actually one book comprised of 66 smaller pieces. There might be books or letters, collections of poems or wise sayings, historical records. We're going to be looking at the fifth of those small books, the one called Deuteronomy. That's a word we actually get from the Greek, not the Hebrew, that the Old Testament was written in. And it literally means second law. Deutero nomos, second law. And we're going to be looking at the 16th chapter. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of those blue ones right there in the pew. Um, you'll find today's passage on page 160 of those blue Bibles. So as you're turning there, I also want to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, you know someone that needs a Bible, 
Take that. Take that blue one with you. It's our gift to you. God's Word is the most precious thing to us here at Trinity. We are people of the Word. And so it would mean the world to us if you would share that with someone. If you need it, if you know someone who needs it, please, please take that. Now before we begin reading, would you join me for a moment of prayer? Father, we adore you. Your goodness is beyond compare. Your righteousness leaves us in awe. Your grace, your mercy are unexplainable. We cast ourselves on you this morning. We need you. We need to see you, to experience you, to taste your fullness. Father, in our sin, but we ask, Father, that today would draw us close, draw us near. As we explore your word this morning, may you be honored. Father, anything that I have that is not from you this morning, I pray that it would fall to the side. May your words be what are heard. Anything that's not from you, let it be forgotten. But God, may your words ring true in our ears, in our hearts, and in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take a look at Deuteronomy 16 together. We're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. We're not going to focus on all of that for our our time, but we want to get the context of the passage. Uh, I lied. We're going to stop at verse 17. Never mind. We're going to read verses 13 through 17, and uh, we'll focus on just verses 13 through 15. So starting at verse 13, big number 16, little number 13, it says, You shall keep the feast of booths seven days. When you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, that he has given you. God's Word actually outlines a series of festivals or holy days. By the way, did you know that's where we get our word holiday? Holy day equals holy day. The days we celebrate were inspired by these holy days that God created. God gave instructions for eight specific holy days or feasts to His people. He gave them these commands between the time that he led them out of slavery in Egypt and the time they entered the promised land. The annual cycle of festivals actually began just three weeks ago. From where we are today on the calendar, annual cycle started just three weeks ago with the Feast of Trumpets. And this last week was what came to be known as The Feast. The Feast of Booths. Or perhaps you've heard it, the Feast of Tabernacles. In the Hebrew, it's actually called Sukkot. This year, my family chose to actually observe this biblical holiday for the first time ever. We're a little strange. What can I say? But we decided we were going to celebrate this holiday. And I have to confess, before we go any further, that much of what I have to say this morning is inspired by the research and the preparation that went into observing this holiday and the observations that I drew throughout this week of celebrating this holiday that a year ago I didn't even realize existed. 
But this morning, I want to take a look at this forgotten holiday. And I intend to make two simple points. First, God gave us a command to keep. And second, he gave us a command to celebrate. And we're going to do that by taking time to ask the fundamental research questions. Some of my school teachers would be very proud. We're going to just go through and we're going to answer the questions you're very familiar with. Who, what, where, when, why, how. Now, probably won't be in that order, but those are the questions we're going to answer as we jump in. So God gave us a command to keep. God gave us a command to celebrate. And so as we look at that first command, the command to keep, look again at verse 13. You shall keep the feast of booths seven days. If you're like me, and you're largely unfamiliar with this holiday, the first question you're probably asking is, what in the world is the Feast of Booths? Or, or maybe, maybe you're actually asking the question, does this even apply to me? Isn't this an Old Testament command? Regardless of where you're at, rest assured, we're going to answer those questions and more. But I want to start with the question, what is Sukkot? What exactly is this Feast of Booths? To help us out with a bit of context, we're going to go back and read another passage. You're welcome to turn there if you want, or not. If you do, keep a finger here, because we're coming back to Deuteronomy. Leviticus chapter 23. There's a favorite. Who likes to read Leviticus? It's your favorite book, right? Okay, fair enough. I kind of like it, but I wouldn't say it's my favorite either. But in Leviticus chapter 23... In verse 33, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booths to the Lord. If you jump down to verse 39, it says, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest. And on the eighth day, shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of the splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. So Sukkot, then, is a holiday rich in symbolism. It's a time when the people of God were literally supposed to move out of their houses for seven days, and to spend that time living in a temporary dwelling, a tent, a tabernacle, a booth. It's a holiday that God instituted as a reminder of how he had provided for his people in the past. Centuries later, when the first-hand accounts and the memories of what God did in Egypt began to fade, this holiday would serve as a reminder of how God had provided. How he had led the people out with a strong hand from Egypt. How he had met their needs in the desert with manna, with quail, with water that miraculously comes springing out of a rock. With clothing that didn't wear out, feet that didn't swell, God provided for his people. And this holiday was a reminder of that goodness. But it wasn't all, only supposed to serve as a reminder. It was a symbol pointing the people forward to the salvation that would ultimately be brought in Jesus. As the Apostle John would later write, he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, or literally tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, 
full of grace and truth. God came to us in his fullness and he pitched his tent, his temporary dwelling among us. God commanded his people to appear before him three times a year. But God, he chose instead to come to us. True, it was only for a season. It was temporary. But he went back to his Father to prepare a place for us to dwell with him forever. So Sukkot is pretty simply a celebration. A week-long celebration where you move out to the front yard and you live in a tent. But we're reminded of how God provided for the past and how he is our eternal provider. So that's what Sukkot is. That's what the Feast of Booths is. When? There's our next question. When? Did you see it in Deuteronomy 16? It says, when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. This is the fall festival. It's the harvest festival. Leviticus 23 told us specifically it's the 15th day of the seventh month. Wait, I thought you said that was this last week. This is the 10th month, right? If you're not familiar, the Hebrew calendar and the traditional American calendar, the calendar most of us use, they're very different. We use a solar calendar. It's based on a 365-day year from the solar calendar. The Jews operate on a lunar calendar. And so the holidays that God has appointed, they kind of float. Sukkot or the Feast of Booths might happen in October. It might happen in September. It's kind of like Easter. Anybody know when Easter is next year? I don't either. It moves. We have to go look at the calendar to figure it out. And that's true also of this festival. But if you're at all involved with agriculture, that's quite fitting, isn't it? Do you harvest on the same day of the year every year? Probably not. It moves, and so does this festival, as we celebrate the abundance of God. <clears throat> the important point here is that God appointed a time. He specified an annual rhythm for his people to remember and to look forward. A time that was connected with harvest. A time of abundance. A time that would hint at the white fields that Jesus promised were just waiting for workers to go out into the harvest. And this was a symbol that is a statute forever throughout your generations. You see, our God, He is a jealous God. He is serious about keeping Himself in the center of our thoughts. He's intentional about reminding us often of our deep and abiding need for His kind provision. He seeks to help to keep the fact that our sin separates us from Him and His goodness the abundance of His grace, He wants those things always before our eyes. He's the one who makes a way for us to dwell with Him. And so annually, every year, God calls us to this time. Okay, that sounds nice. But remember, this is an Old Testament command, right? Are you thinking that? We're free from the law. We live under grace. Amen! Praise God. Our eternal state is not dependent on our rigid adherence to this festival or any of the other 613 commands listed in the first five books of the Bible. You thought there were ten commandments, right? No, if you actually read from Genesis through Deuteronomy, there are 613 explicit commands given by God for His people. Praise God, we are not bound by those. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Even still, take a second look at verse 14. It says, You shall rejoice 
in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. Tucked away in this beautiful little verse are four key takeaways, I think, for us this morning. First, the festival is for both the young and the old. Second, this festival is for both the males and the females. Third, this festival is for both those with and those without. The haves and the have-nots. Now, I'm not saying you're the haves and you're the have-nots, but just forgive my hands. This festival is for forth both for God's chosen people and for the foreigner. So let's look at those in turn. The young and the old. It says this feast is for both you and your sons and your daughters. God is in the business of building a multi-generational story. He is building a kingdom, an empire. I wonder today if you might have been challenged, perhaps even bothered by some of the realities that have been our time these past few months worshiping together. We're all together. Now we're in two separate services, so we're not all together, but when we're here in this service, we're all together. Meaning, no nursery. I'll be honest, I feel this one. There's lots of little kids that are in the service. Not this morning, I don't see any here, but during second service, I know there'll be at least a couple that would normally be in the nursery. You know, crying babies, fidgeting kids, distractions, perhaps. A little embarrassing for some parents, maybe. But without a doubt, it has been a blessing. Remember, it was our Lord who said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. God's picture of this celebration, this feast, is what many of us picture when we think of Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas morning. The little kids and the parents, the grandparents, even the great-grandparents, all gathered around the table, gathered around the tree, celebrating together their shared history, the traditions they've built over the generations. Could it possibly be that intergenerational worship is one of the things that our Lord was seeking to bring back to the American church through this pandemic? I don't know. But God says clearly that His plan is for a multi-generational legacy. This festival is for both the young and the old. But not only does this festival point out the truth that age is not intended to separate us, Gender is also cast aside. The passage lists specifically your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant. In our culture today, gender is a bit of a hot topic. It can be a little contentious. Gender dysphoria, transgenderism, gender equity in the workplace, homosexuality, Gender transition surgeries. There's some weird stuff being discussed in our culture. But God's Word, the teaching of Scripture, is very clear. In general and here in this specific passage, we see God created two distinct but equal genders. I'm going to say that again. God created two distinct but equal genders. The men are not superior to the women. The women are not superior to the men. Male and female are divinely created. They are unique. They are distinct. But both male and female are invited to the feast. Even commanded to celebrate the divine goodness of our God, the provision of the Lord. 
Have you ever stopped to consider that? Gender was a gift of God. Specifically designed by our Creator. Our culture wants to redefine what these things mean. But this, this book, is our source of truth. And this book has answered once and for all how gender is to be defined. See, age, gender, they're not supposed to separate us. They're not supposed to be barriers for us as we celebrate the goodness of God. Likewise, our socioeconomic status is not supposed to be a barrier. It's not supposed to be a wall of separation. Did you see it there in verse 14? Your male servant and your female servant. The fatherless. The widow. The servants referenced here were servants for a reason. They were not financially able to be otherwise. They served because they did not have the means for others to serve them. Does that make sense? In fact, some translations might actually say, rather than male and female servant, they might say male and female slave. Likewise, the fatherless, the widow, those are synonymous with the most vulnerable in society. The destitute, the poor, those without a protector. You see, the picture of this feast is the rich and the poor, the business owner and the entry-level employee, the blue-collar, the white-collar. Regardless of where one sits on the socioeconomic ladder, all are considered equal at this great festival. All of our differences, they fade away at the throne of our Savior. In the midst of this contentious and difficult political season, where the opinions over how best to address this unprecedented pandemic, the decisions about the future of our nation, they are driving wedges. Wedges of division between us. We need something like this festival to remind us that whether we vote Democrat or Republican, our unity is found in Christ. The unity that we have in Jesus is greater than any other difference of opinion. It doesn't matter what we think about masks, what we think about social distancing. It doesn't matter what we think about Supreme Court justices, police reform, or whatever news headline will top your feed or the front page of the newspaper tomorrow morning. Our unity is found in Jesus. But perhaps most notable for many of us today is the fact that verse 14 indicates that this festival is for both those of those who are God's chosen people and those who are outside the fold. We sang a few moments ago how we were wandering from the fold. You see, in this passage, the command is for the Levites and the sojourner to take part in the feast. The Levites. Who are the Levites? The Levites are the descendants of Levi, who was Levi. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. Jacob was later renamed Israel. The Levites are one of the twelve tribes of Israel. And they were set aside specifically by God for service in the religious activities of the nation. They were responsible for tending to the tabernacle of God and later to the temple. They led the people in worship. They were the ones who ran the sacrificial system. The Levites were undoubtedly on the inside when it came to worshiping Yahweh, our God. But immediately following this reference to the Levite is one for the sojourner. Or as other translations might list it, the transient one, the stranger, the foreign resident. 
These are the ones who are outside the fold. In fact, the prophet Zechariah issues a warning regarding a foreigner's disregard for this festival. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 18, it says, And if the family of Egypt, yeah, I said Egypt, does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. The fact that God extends this festival to both the Jews and to foreigners has two key points of application for us today. First, if you are a Gentile believer, which if you are here this morning and you profess faith in Jesus Christ, that pretty much describes you. Unless you are Jewish by birth and you believe in Jesus, you're a Gentile believer. God in His kindness intended for you to partake in this festival of remembrance and expectation from the very beginning. Just like the promise that was given to Abraham. It says, and I will make you a great nation. I will make you, Abraham, a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Oftentimes we can read the pages of the Old Testament and think, God didn't care about any of us until Jesus came along in the New Testament. He was only concerned for one nation, one people, the, the people of Israel. And then all of a sudden something changed, and Jesus came and He invited us all into the fold. No, God's plan has been for you since the beginning. You were invited to partake in this feast from its inception. God has always been in the business of saving more than just the nation of Israel. Now, to be sure, there is no obligation placed on you today to immediately be observing Sukkot or any of the other festivals. That is not my point this morning. I am not telling you, you should have been celebrating Sukkot this week. We are not saved by our adherence to these celebrations. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else. He is the way, the truth, the life. Nevertheless, it can't hurt to take time each year practicing this festival. Practicing the act of celebrating God's provision. Now, I said there were two points of application to this idea of the Levite and the foreigner. First, if you're a Gentile believer, God intended for you to be part of the festival from the beginning. And second, if you're here today and you would say, I'm not sure about this Jesus stuff. I, I'm not really ready to commit to this. I, I would not describe myself as a follower of Jesus. If that's you, I've got good news for you as well. Jehovah, our God, he invites you as the outsider. He invites you to join in this celebration. Today, He calls you to become part of the family of God. You are invited to dine, to celebrate as part of the family. This is a festival that looks forward. And it's one that reminds us all that we are all travelers. We're all passing through on our way to the new Jerusalem. So that brings us to our fourth question. We're continuing to research this topic of the Feast of Booths. We've asked what? We've asked when? We've asked who? What about where? 
Where are we supposed to Sukkot? Take a look at verse 15. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose. This is one of the most exciting points of this entire passage. You're not excited enough. Did you catch it? God established this holiday and said, you shall keep the feast. And he said, location, TBD. Location to be determined. This festival is looking forward. As time advanced, the tradition was established that this was one of the annual feasts that would be the pilgrimage feast, or one where the people would travel from wherever they were to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate. But even those celebrations in the city of Jerusalem were a shadow of things to come. Again, Zechariah helps us out here. In chapter 14, starting in verse 6 of Zechariah's prophecy, it says, On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. That's strange. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. Again, a picture that God's plan is for all the nations. It shall continue in summer as in winter. It's eternal. It's unending. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. The, Lord, the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft. On its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the tower of Hananel, to the king's wine presses, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Expectantly, excitedly, together we long for the fulfillment of this prophecy. A day is coming when all the nations will go up together year after year to worship the King, to keep the Feast of Booths. We are traveling towards a more permanent home, a place where we can live together with God. See, God's given us a command to keep. He's given us a command to observe this holiday as a statute forever throughout our generations. And He's told us what it is. He's told us when to observe it. He's made it clear that everyone is welcome at the festival despite any differences we might have. And He's told us that the place for these festivities is the place that He Himself has been preparing. The new city. The heavenly city. Did you notice? The city of Jerusalem will be aloft. It's a picture of the heavenly realm. But not only are we given a command to keep, we are also given a command to celebrate. Did you notice it? Verse 14, back in Deuteronomy. You shall rejoice. That one's interesting. You shall rejoice. The verb here is the word samach. It's a Hebrew word, and it's actually presented in the perfect tense. Without taking a deep dive into linguistics and all that fun stuff, the English language uses three tenses. We're pretty familiar with them, right? Past, present, and future. But there are other languages like Hebrew that include additional tenses. One of them is known as the perfect tense. Simply, this statement, you shall rejoice, is in the perfect tense. It's spoken as a completed action. You shall rejoice in your feast that you're supposed to practice in the, on the 15th day of the 7th month. 
but it's a completed action. It's a statement of a future event, but it's declared with absolute certainty of its fulfillment. Put another way, this is a promise of God. It is fixed. It is guaranteed. We are told to celebrate. We're commanded to rejoice. How can we rejoice on command? Is it possible to rejoice because someone tells you to? Can you just flip on the switch and be joyful? Joy is defined by Merriam-Webster as the emotion. The emotion evoked by well-being, by success, or good fortune. But to rejoice, to rejoice is a verb. It's an action word. To rejoice is an act, a choice, a practice even. The definition for joy from Merriam-Webster goes on to say that it can be an emotion evoked by the prospect of possessing what one desires. God in His goodness tells us not just what Sukkot is, but He gives us instructions for how. How are we to celebrate it? Three times in the Torah, we see Moses give instructions to the people of God regarding this, this festival. We've focused our time on, this, on the third one here in Deuteronomy. We've already read from Leviticus, and we've seen the instructions there. But in the book of Numbers, anybody, is, is that anybody else's favorite? Anybody, anybody like Numbers? That's a thrilling title for a book, by the way. If you're not a numbers person, rest assured, there's actually some good stuff in there. It's not just a bunch of numbers. It's not just math. But in the book of Numbers, two entire chapters are dedicated to the details, the numbers, regarding the specific offerings and sacrifices that are to be made at each of the festivals. Numbers 28 and 29 recount this for you, for us. And I'm willing to bet that if you've been in the church, been around church people for any length of time, you've probably heard of Passover. Passover is one of those feasts established by God here. It remembers God's divine deliverance of his people out of Egypt. And it's probably the most well-known of the feasts. And Numbers 28 tells us that that feast was to be observed with 14 bulls, 7 rams, and 49 male lambs sacrificed to the Lord. But if you compare that to the words of Numbers 29, the Feast of Booths, calls for 70 bulls, 14 rams, and 98 male lambs. Not to mention the 22 bushels of grain that were also supposed to be consumed during this feast. Now, I did a little bit of research, and by today's standards, harvest weight for these animals, that could add up to more than 45,000 pounds of meat. As I mentioned, I don't go to the store very often. I don't do the shopping, but I know meat's expensive. This was the feast. The Feast of Booths was big. Sukkot is a festival of abundance, of celebration, of harvest. It's a festival of extravagance. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, it says, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose, familiar terms here, to make his name dwell, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, that's pretty cool, 10% of your Resources may be too much for you to carry because God will bless you. Because the place is too far from you, it continues. It says, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there. Then you shall turn that tithe into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire. 
oxen, or sheep, or wine, or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. The how of our research this morning is go big. Celebrate the goodness of the Lord your God. Whatever your appetite craves, enjoy it to the glory of our Savior. That's the kind of God we serve. Some might say, following Jesus, it's kind of boring. There's no fun with the Christians. But our God calls us to celebrate big. Rejoice. Practice the emotion of well-being, success, and good fortune. Practice it in the certain knowledge that God's salvation is guaranteed. When was the last time you sat back and just reveled in the goodness of God? We have a God who is lavish in His love. Abundant. Unnecessarily so. And as we conclude this morning, we have just one more question we need to answer. Why? Why Sukkot? Why should we even bother spending our time this morning talking about this ancient festival that we've never even heard of? Back in Deuteronomy chapter 16, we see our answer. Look how the passage concludes at the end of verse 15. It says, Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands so that you will be altogether joyful. Or as the NIV puts it, your joy will be complete. You have to remember, this command was given to the people of God in the deserts. This passage that we've been reading from Deuteronomy 16 falls in the history of God's people after they had wandered the desert for 40 years. An entire generation had died in the desert. They'd been wandering due to their disobedience, due to their doubting of God's ability to provide for His people. But now they are standing on the banks of the Jordan River. On the other side of the river is the land that God has promised is flowing with milk and honey. It has everything they could possibly need. We're told it's not even like the, the goodness of the Nile, where they'd come from, where they had to work the ground to produce. It says God causes the land to produce. Things just grow naturally. They're standing on the bank, looking across the river, about to enter the promised land. Moses is bidding the people farewell because he is not allowed to go with them. Joshua is about to take command and lead the people across. But that does not mean that the woes and challenges of the last 40 years weren't real. Centuries later, the Apostle John would record a series of events from the ministry of Jesus, from his earthly ministry. And in chapter 7 of his gospel, we're told, now the Feast of Booths was at hand. And it says in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. If anyone thirsts, let him come. 
let him drink. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Did you catch that from Zechariah? The promise of the prophet was that there would be rivers of living water flowing out to the east and the west. God's fulfillment of these things was in Jesus. Our joy is complete in Jesus. After wandering the desert of this life for years, Jesus calls out to all, to us, to you, to me. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I'm going to invite the team to come back up. And as we conclude, I'm just wondering, where are you this morning? Are you dry? Are you parched? Do you feel like you're wandering the desert? Are you far from Jesus this morning? Jesus invites you. He's calling you. He's calling out to anyone who's thirsty. And He's saying, come. That means you too. He's calling to you. And he's calling with a simple call. We've heard it many times as Pastor Jordan has been going through the book of Mark. It's simple. He, he simply says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Enjoy the lavish love of your God. Join us at the table. Celebrate with us together. You're no longer a stranger. No longer a slave, but now a friend. You're invited to cast your trust upon Jesus. But if you, if you walk with Jesus, you call yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm wondering about you too. I'm wondering, do you know what it's like to celebrate the goodness of God? When was the last time you paused and just remembered all of the blessings He has poured out on you? Are you extravagant in your worship of our God? He's extravagant in His love for you. Father, we thank You. We thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your extravagant love towards us. May we celebrate Your kindness and may Your kindness lead us to repentance.